Welcome, I'm Ross Young and I'm here with G. Mark Hardy, and we are excited to share with you CISO Tradecraft. Just as a quick background in case you haven't heard our show before, CISO Tradecraft is a podcast designed to help folks in the information security community learn the techniques, methods, and technologies in the industry. The show focuses on helping mentor the next generation of cyber leaders take information security skills to an executive level. With that, I'm excited to present to you today's show. Welcome, everyone. I'm Ross Young, and I'm here with G. Mark Hardy. And today, we're excited to teach a little bit of something different you might not have heard before. And one of the questions that I get asked all the time whenever I go on podcasts is, what book have you read the most, or which book has helped you the most to become a CISO? And for me, that book is The Phoenix Project. And it is a fantastic book by Gene Kim. Don't worry, we're going to put a link in, in the notes of the show. But it really allows you to think of how to do things cheaper, faster, and better. And if you can do that in any job, you're going to make drastic improvements for the better. So we're excited to talk a little bit about uh, this concept of the three ways and, and share with you some things that will help you transform to be a better CISO. G. Mark, would you like to tell us what the three ways are? Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, it's interesting because when we talk about this, I mean, my background has uh, for years been consulting. And so the value proposition that you present to a potential customer is good, fast, cheap. Pick any two. <laughs> because usually if you want it good and fast, it's not going to be cheap. And if you want it uh, cheap and fast is not going to be good. Well, here we're talking about is the opportunity to perhaps achieve all of that. And that's that's a real milestone in terms of accomplishment, but also a great way to drive value. And the three ways that Gene talks about, the kind of a fundamental shift in thinking is the principles of flow, principles of feedback, and principles of continuous learning. So flow, feedback, and continuous learning. Let's let's take a look at each one of these in turn to see what does it mean, and then what can we learn from it, and then how can we apply it to help us out in our jobs. So when we talk about flow, all right, flow means what? It's kind of really we're looking at the performance of our entire system. That what happens is there's a value stream that exists. Um, we find out what the customer wants, if you will, our internal customer. We enable it through IT. We can use our dev team to then move it on to the operations team to create value um, and things such as that. How, is, how does that work? What, what is your understanding, Ross, from, from reading this book and using the, the pieces? So if you think about it, at the end of the day, every organization has limited resources that are constrained in some way maybe money, maybe people, maybe processes, whatever you have in, in government constraints, those things affect what you have to do. So if you can optimize the way you deliver your resources, then you allow your organization to be more effective, right? And, and this is what we think about when we think of competitive advantages. How can we optimize our, our flow? And, and, and just think about it this way. Every single one of us has gone to the DMV 
And when you're in the DMV, you're sitting there and you're waiting and you're like, there has got to be a way to make this more efficient and faster, right? And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the flow. Is there a way where this line and these weights just could be optimized? So when we think of flow, there's a, a lot of different things. Gmark, have you had any uh, examples of, of where you saw some optimization for flow in your life? Well, I have. And let, let me start out with one that's definitely not an IT one, but people will relate to. So anybody's ever gone to DEF CON, the hacker conference, uh, you understand that the reg lines, registration lines, you'd literally stand in line for hours. It was extraordinarily inefficient. And what would happen is people would line up early on and then We'd have the goons there, they'd move people forward, and then you go to a counter, and the people behind the counter, they'd have to take a badge, and they'd have to take a lanyard, then they'd have to take a book, then some stickers and a bag, assemble it all together, and then hand it to the person, and off you go. And then you, when they walk away, they'd say, next. Well, I remember talking to Bill, who was running it, he said, hey, can we try something different? I mean, how about we just set up a table here where people can grab their lanyard, they can grab this, they basically assemble it as they go. And really the only controlled equipage, if you will, is at the end is that badge. And so here's the cash, here's the badge, off you go and keep things moving. Uh, there's a lot of resistance to that until you finally said, What's, can we try a pilot project? And that's one of the little secrets that you might find is that if you come up with a great idea and you're encountering organizational inertia, you can always ask for a pilot project because a pilot doesn't imply a commitment on behalf of management. And you can try just about anything that way. And so with that result, if you go to a DEF CON today, and I won't take credit for it because they say, because other people have implemented it, but things go a whole lot faster. So calling attention to a problem, creating a pilot project, and maybe not even requiring ownership of the result, but just letting other people look at it and go, hmm, that actually looked a little bit better. They'll take it and run with it. So, so as we think about these principles of the first way, the way of flow, one of the things we're going to see is it all starts with making work visible, right? And, and we see this in agile thinking. They, they have this idea of a Kanban board. And if you've never seen a Kanban board, imagine there's three ways you, you bin work. One is it's on the to-do list of things that are upcoming and in the backlog, if you will. There's things I'm doing right now, and then there's things that are completed. And, and you can just take little post-it cards and move them along between the three different silos. But this ability to make work visible is really the first thing to think about. And, and just think about it from a developer perspective. If cyber comes to the developers and says, hey, we have TLS 1.2, that's a requirement. You need to do this. Okay. Now we go to them and we say, hey, you know what? We need you to have better logs. Okay. Now we go to them and say, hey, we see you're using containers. You got to do these things. And, and, and the laundry list keeps adding of developer burden, right? And, and now they're looking at like 50% of their work is, is cyber stuff there's going to be a strong pushback or they're going to lie to you and say, yeah, we're doing it or it's already done and, and they didn't do it. Right. And so in every organization, if you're going to be that CISO, be that guy or girl who who's in charge of this thing, you need to understand how much work you're tasking developers and what percentage of their time you're going to require. Because if you don't understand that, 
then you don't understand where you can leverage those resources and optimize them to solve the security problems. So then this Kanban board, for whom is, whose consumption is that? Is that for the developers, for the IT? Is it for boss? Who, who's going to look at this? So Kanban boards are going to be used by every organization. And so when, when I was leading a team of, of DevOps at, at CIA, we, we had two Kanban boards. And I, and I always thought this was, was relevant. And, and other people may have different ways. I wanted a Kanban board for all the people below me. And then I wanted a different Kanban board for all the people above me. And, and this is, if you think about it, the, the developers under a manager are going to be in the weeds, right? They're going to be building something, these niche technical features. And I, I want to make sure that the ball isn't getting dropped on whatever things that they're building. But we have to abstract that for management. And so that comes up one layer. And now as I'm going to my, my boss, who may be less technical than I am, they don't care about all the individual deliverables of everything every developer is doing. They just want to know the status of the project. Will this major feature be delivered that we've already promised customers, right? Those higher level, let's say, uh, deliverables or product status, that's what I want to show in my Kanban board so that it's relevant to the stakeholders and audiences that it's being communicated to. So what we have then, way is, is really what we're talking about is communications. Communications in a way that conveys both perhaps the complexity of what's going on, but also breaking it down into areas that are simple enough to be understood so that there's no sense of overwhelm going on. Yeah, and, and I think this is a modern take of what we want the experience to be. You know, historically, we'd have these waterfall methods where we said everything had to be pre-planned and you had three-year budgets in the federal government to plan things. Well, when software changes so fast and you don't even know what you're going to do six months from now, like if you were to think about last year it, it, on January 1st, 2020, who was planning a COVID pandemic and doing all this remote from home? Probably not anyone. Right. So so making that ability to be a little bit more agile and having this this Kanban board of, let's say, to do backlog work and making that visible and being able to say, oh, I can put this to the top of their priority list really helps. Now, OK, so we make work visible now for the work that's going on. How do you implement these tools to make sure, for example, that we don't overwhelm by trying to do 10, 20, 30 things at the same time? This is often, we're getting pressures from all, all the time. So we need to understand that there is this thing called context switching. And, and what that is, is imagine you're in a conference and you're listening to a speaker. And now you also have your phone and you're checking on LinkedIn or Facebook, checking all these messages at the same time. By multitasking, you're actually diluting your ability to effectively listen to that speaker, right? And, and it limits your productivity to, to really be able to maximize that meeting. And the same sort of thing exists in this world which is if you're doing lots of things but never finishing them, 
That's that's what they call work in progress or WIP. And we want to limit WIP because at the end of the day, what is most important is delivery of results. So the more I can focus on cranking out a deliverable, that's where I can drive effectiveness. And if I'm always switching, and, and you just think of, of tooling, right? If I'm a manufacturing company and I'm going to be building things that require a Phillips head screwdriver, I have to get all that, I have to get that tool from the toolbox to get it there. And now if I have to change where I'm going to use a flat head screwdriver, I have to go back to the toolbox, pull that out, switch. So the ability to always be using things that only require the Phillips head screwdriver and remove that context switching is a way we can optimize the flow of, of deliverables. It makes good sense. And so now what we have then is, in a way, the kind of the executive analogy is clearing your desk every night. Because uh, I remember when I used to work at the Office of Naval Research, you deal with some of these brilliant scientists, and you'd walk in there, and this would look like you know, the piles of paper, the piles of things just everywhere. And they might be able to find everything, but that's not an executive way. The way is you know, pretty much work on something, finish it, move it on. Well, to be able to work on something, finish it, move it on, when you have all these different demands on your time, suggests that we can't just go ahead and grab a two-month project and focus on nothing but that. So what type of strategies might we do in terms of being able to ensure that the work for our people doesn't end up being overwhelming to the exclusion of all the other things that have to get done? Well, when we think about things, it's a lot easier to do 10 small things than one big thing, right? So if somebody said, hey, I want you to run a marathon, that's really hard to do, right? But if somebody says, hey, I want you to run a mile each day, that, that's a lot easier to do. So when we think about this in terms of cybersecurity, instead of, let's say, having one patch release every 90 days, we might say, how do we do small patches every week? And this ability is, is really interesting because by reducing the batch size and chunking up our, our work, we have smaller risk because the chance of just this one feature causing an issue is, isn't that bad compared to 10 new features, which we don't know how they all interact. And by adding incrementally, we can figure out where did the one thing go wrong a lot easier. It's not this murder mystery of out of the 15 features we introduced, which one is causing the harm. Yeah, that almost sounds like a sales pitch for Agile over Waterfall. And in fact, I think that's a lot of what drove that is to be able to create these tighter feedback loops, these little two-week sprints, rather than heading off to Santa's workshop with a set of requirements and you come back four months later and deliver what you think the customer wanted. Um, but as we find, though, in we're talking in the world of DevOps and, and for CISOs, there's going to be different teams, different groups. Typically, when we talk about DevOps, we're talking about the development team and the operations team. And so one of the concerns that I think happens a lot is that if you have multiple teams involved in building or developing something, um, things can get lost in the communications. The old children's game of telegraph, if you will, where you start with one thing and as you pass it around the room, the message changes. Uh, what are the thoughts on that? Is, is any ideas there? The more handoffs we have, the slower something is going to be. And just think about things from a system level availability or average time to turn around a ticket. 
If I have an SLA that says, hey, when something comes into the help desk, where you got three days to respond to that customer and, and do something, and then help desk says, hey, I don't know how to do this. I got to go to level two help desk. And, and they have a five-day turnaround, right? And, and then in, and the help desk doesn't know. So now they got to go to the developers and the developer has another five-day turnaround. Every single one of those things makes the, the overall experience a lot worse be, in, in terms of the time it takes to get through to, to actually solve a problem. So from a cyber side, we need to look at things when we have security review boards or change management processes to say, are these things really value add or are they just slowing our agility to release something very, very fast? Because that affects the flow of a system. And I think what you're pointing out is kind of a general philosophy of acceptance of error in that traditionally what we want to do is we want things to come out and be ideally error-free. But as we anybody who's ever been a developer knows, writing bug-free code is just sort of a myth, or maybe something of science fiction. Uh, and so what we find then is that uh, speed to market becomes important. But what do you, what do you, what do you consider? Yeah. And in, in one great example of this is Jeff Bezos at AWS. And he came into an organization and he found that there were all these handoffs that were really slowing the organization down. And you know what he told the teams? He says, the only way you're allowed to talk to this other team is via an API call. And guess what? If the only way you can talk is via an API call, now that amount of time it takes to hand off data between systems, instead of waiting for an email and an approval and a response, goes significantly faster. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, you know, I kind of wondered when you look at AWS, like how did it end up at Amazon instead of somebody at someplace else? And yet you find out that outstanding leadership can provide some insights at places that you least expect it, that really kind of break down these silos and, uh, and keep things moving along. And so I guess the last part of this way of the principle of flow as we go ahead and we want to go, you know, make worker visible kind of limit that work in progress so there's not these too many things going on. We've got nice little batch chunks work that are bite-sized, if you will, and not doing all these complicated time-consuming handoffs is I think you want to go ahead and address the issues of things such as you know too many constraints or even waste. Is that kind of a good way to wrap this first way up? Definitely. I think you need to understand when do you need people and when do you need automation? And automation is always faster. And sometimes you need a human judgment. And, and there can also be a merger of human and, and automation and, and the same thing. So think of it this way. If we have a, if I have to brief a general and I'm a, a airman in the Air Force, do I have to go to my second lieutenant and then my first lieutenant? and then the captain, and then the colonel, and then the and then finally you get to the general, right? All of that is a lot of constraints and waste instead of having that one person be enabled to, to really get there. So understanding where if these things follow a template and we can already skip to the colonel to then go to that presentation, maybe a really good thing. 
but you have to understand the politics. You have to understand the decisions, the reviews. And, and as you look for those things, think about where you as an organization are willing to change on these constraints and, and wasteful things. And do you not understand why they provide value? Or is it something that you can really kill? Yeah, and it kind of, a lot depends on the context of the organization. I mean, I retired as a senior military officer. And so I got to tell you that um, typically we do use a chain of command for value and that a lot of these things can often be answered along the way. Uh, and then otherwise you just have chaos because then you get into issues of span of control and then how many people can you manage and, and good order and discipline. And that's something maybe for another call or maybe never, or at least for this, uh, this group thing. But yeah, exactly. Get rid of those constraints and the waste. You know, and the one thing that I think is potentially uh, to be aware of as a leader is the presence of heroics. That is to say, if you've got a hero who pulls something off at the last minute, well, in the military, say, well, we, we, we give medals to heroes, someone who goes on and risks their life or, or does something that's bold and intrepid and daring and things such as that. But if we require heroism in our organizations to get our work done, there is something desperately wrong with our process, is that we don't need that or we shouldn't need that. And when it happens, it kind of points back to a failure on our part as a leader. And, and that's really one of the major principles they highlight in this book. There's uh, a guy by the name of Brent who is a lead engineer. And, and you can think of this person as the, the smartest engineer in your company. So when everybody doesn't know how to fix it, he is the person that you go to to say, what do I need to do to fix it? And he solves it. But what he does in, in the book is he just logs in the command line, does some magic, and then afterwards it's fixed. And so people don't understand what's happening, right, of, of how he fixed it and how does the system get smarter. And what also we end up seeing is because he is the person that everybody goes to, well, he's not doing a 40-hour week. He's getting crushed by every team and every senior VP who needs their project, uh, let's say, workable. And, and so the ability to protect that constraint, such as your, your expert who can only work on the highest priorities, is really important if we're going to protect the overall flow of how that system gets delivered as, as fast as possible, right? You can only go as fast as the choke point in your organization. Just think of if everything had this sequential flow and this one thing takes three days, you're never going to deliver your overall project in less than three days. That is your constraint of your system. Mm -hmm. Which um, kind, of, kind of introduces the next fundamental way that we're discussing, which is the principle of feedback. And so if we find, for example, as an organization where you're, you're sending things and you're wondering, why is there a bottleneck or why is this not working? Uh, feedback becomes important. It's kind of going from you know, right to left, if you will, going back up earlier in the value chain. And if we have a feedback loop, we want to get those to occur a little bit faster. Um, because if we uh, take too long to provide that, then we're just exacerbating the problem. And then lastly, of course, we want to understand what our customers think about, uh, because there's going to be customer feedback as well. And anybody who's ever tried to propose changes to a, a, a large commercial organization as a customer and have your 
um, you know, been pandered to, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll put that in our list uh, and nothing ever happens. But what are, what are our thoughts here about the principles of feedback? So if you think in an, a cyber organization or any developer organization, you're probably going to have someone like an architect. And, and their goal is to solve problems and build best practices or new knowledge of how to tackle something that they want the entire organization to follow. And this allows us to fail fast quickly, right? If we know there's three ways to build something and two of these ways don't work, and this is the best practice to, to do this third way, well, how do we socialize that idea so that the next turn, the next time Bobby, the intern comes into the company, he says, oh, let me just, you know, talk to the architect or let me go look up the documentation and the preferred standards that, that show me how to do something versus me building the, the same thing that went wrong 10 times before. So we're talking about fail fast. It kind of goes back to what I was referring to earlier, which is some sort of a tolerance for mistakes or tolerance for error, is that if we get into the zero defect mentality, uh, that's perhaps great when you're manufacturing a device of some sort or a product, but it doesn't work with humans because humans are, well, we're people and we don't, we do have defects and zero defect leadership, zero defect management is ridiculous from that perspective. But what you're saying is part of your culture. If you encourage people to be willing to embrace and take some risk there. And if you fail, fail fast and learn from it and document it. so we don't do that again. I think the trick isn't to avoid all mistakes. It's just never to make the same one twice. And so let me give you two examples as a CISO the, of things that I see to, to enable this. The first one may be when we have a severity outage that causes an IT system to go down, how do we socialize those lessons learned to the other teams to say, here was what happened. Let's, let's make sure it's not chronic through our environment, right? And that provides a lot of value for for teams to, to be able to, to swarm on this type of knowledge. Another example may be, how do you use your incident response teams to say, let's look at the most common spear phishing attacks that, that targeted our, our user population. And what are some trends that we want to notify the rest of the users on to bring that awareness and security vigilance on? So using this ability to swarm really helps. And, and what we want to be able to do is, is really find ways where we can push this feedback faster to the people who need to implement it. This is called pushing quality closer to the source. Gmark, have you, have you seen opportunities where the, the closer you are in this telegram game, the better your chances are of getting the right message? Yeah, I think, Ross, what your way to think about this is as follows. If you take a look at the work of Dr. Edwards Deming, and I'd study a lot about Deming back in the, in the day. And for those who aren't familiar with Deming, he is all about quality and building it into your process. The traditional American manufacturing approach was you have an assembly line, you build things at the very end, you inspect. And then you reject those that fail the inspection and off you go. Well, after World War II, MacArthur was faced with the task of rebuilding Japan as a nation. You know, it had been pretty much destroyed from their infrastructure. And he brought this American, who was largely ignored back in his home country, 
who helped really institute a culture of quality. And so what we find out is even today, the prestigious national award in Japan for quality and manufacturing is the Edwards Deming Award. But what's interesting about um, Deming, and I listened to some of his talks and his videos when I was training for, for some of the total quality um, control, um, control and things like that about looking at the, the system, is he had what he called a red bead experiment. And this is a great way to illustrate the importance of what we're talking about here. And essentially, you'd have a little tray with nipples in it and a bucket full of red and white beads, some proportion of it. And he said, you're a worker and your goal is to go ahead and produce a tray full of white beads. And uh, there's uh, 30 holes in here and you can have no more than uh, five red beads. And then you've met quality standards. And so you dip this thing into the bowl, shake it out, and out comes some random assortment of it. And the first time you do that, because there's only a handful of red beads, maybe you get uh, four and you go, well, hey, great. You've met quality standards. You're going to be great. And you try it again and you get three. It says, hey, you're going to be the employee of the month. This is awesome. Well, of course, it's a random process. The next time you do it, there's eight. Oh, there's a problem here. Maybe we're going to have to move on. And, re- and what happens then is we realize very quickly from that illustration that the problem isn't the employee. It's the manufacturing process. And so really what we're looking at in pushing quality closer to the source is not so much, okay, here, go ahead and come up with your beads and then inspect them at the end. Oh, you failed. But let's go ahead and get all the red beads out of the, uh, the bucket to begin with. And then you've pushed the quality of the manufacturing. You can't make an error. And so what we want to do then is give the opportunity to address things like security early on so that no security bugs work their way down the chain where we're not ending up dealing with oh, responding to press releases and lawsuits and um, trying to brief the board as to how this all got through. And that is such a great point because what we see is if you can fix software defects in the early developer stages, it can be as much as 100 times cheaper than in production. And, and you just think about it. If one developer who's writing the code finds that fix, it's only his time that's wasted to rewrite that code. But let's say it's a production release and a customer says, hey, this feature is broken. I can't you know, use your product anymore. Well, now we got to talk to the customer. So you're talking to your comms and your help desk. You got to go back to the developer. You got to go to quality control. You have to go to a change management window to, to deploy. And you may have to put some type of additional you know, marketing and release around what happened and why you're doing a version. So now you've involved all of these people that you wouldn't have to do if you had just had that one developer find that fix early on. So significant cost savings when you can push quality closer to the source. And And what, what that really allows us to do is think about, well, how can I optimize what I do early on so that it's easier for people later on? Right. What do you think, G-Mark? Instead of just thinking about, hey, I've got this code and let somebody else figure out how to implement it. As a developer, you want to start thinking about, okay, if I were in operations, how would I roll this out? How would I deploy it? How would I make this stay functioning? And having that feedback loop, but also being able to try to think of, are you creating problems for somebody downstream, uh, means that a tighter communications uh, by thinking of the first way, the, the principles of flow, basically, as we talked earlier, making your work visible and handing things off in kind of a seamless way. And then as we go through with our second way of feedback by 
kind of getting into this fail fast mentality where we can go ahead and get people to work on it. We move quality earlier in the production chain so that we don't build defects and, and inherit them into a longer stream where it's going to cost us more and more to fix. And then ultimately creating a mindset where you're literally thinking about how is it going to take for the next person to implement it? I think one of the ways that I think is almost beautiful for optimizing the work for downstream work centers is if you've ever bought a Dyson vacuum cleaner, those things come apart and they go back together. And I look at it and I just love the engineering in them because if you've ever tried to work on some cars and you realize that some automobiles, are you kidding me? Uh, I know in my car to change the air filter, I've got to drop the entire um, right side of the dashboard, including the glove box. And to go ahead and change one of the taillights, I got to remove a whole assembly out of there from the back. I think, what were you guys thinking when you engineered this? You're probably just, you weren't thinking about the end user. Uh, and so when I had heard rumors last year that Dyson was going to build an electric car, I said, this is going to be great. I bet you could take the whole thing apart in five minutes. Um, <laughs> the idea is we can tell when somebody has literally thought about this entire um you know, feedback from the customer and going downstream and then things being able to work really well. Which and, and think about this in terms of cybersecurity, right? Your cust and in, in, in IT as a whole, your customers do not care that it worked in dev. They they just don't care. They want it to work in prod, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we standardize our environments so that our dev systems mirror our quality assurance systems, which mirror our prod systems. And if we do that, then what we're building in dev will really reflect the use cases, the amount of data, the user performance experiences that we need to understand to get the product right. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So we've talked about two of the three ways, and, and perhaps we're ready to talk about the third way which is principles of continuous learning. And that's rather interesting because what we find out is not just continuous learning, but also experimentation, which if you're going to experiment, you have to, again, be willing as a manager to accept some amount of risk or uncertainty that some of these things won't work out correctly. And so from a cultural perspective, if we have part of an organization overall that is gets angry at people if they make mistakes, they hold it against you. This is going on your permanent record. Uh, that whole mentality tends to discourage innovation. And what we have then is people that instead of being committed to some sort of a project or a goal, they're just merely compliant. Uh, they'll do what they're told, but only as much as they're told for risk of, of stepping out of line and getting yelled at or, or worse. And so how do we embody the principles of continuous learning in our organization to give us that fundamental shift? So I think we need to be very realistic that IT and cloud and cyber change so fast. And GMARC, you, you had mentioned GMARC's law. Do you want to repeat that for our listeners in case they haven't heard it before? Yeah, it's, it's kind of a GMARC's law or, or my corollary to Moore's law. Um, and that is half of what you know about security will be obsolete in 18 months. And uh, I stated that many years ago, put it into writing. And it's interesting because you figure in the last 18 months, we've lost what, Windows 7, Office 2010. Uh, there's a few more things that have just fallen by the wayside. COVID-19 didn't exist 18 months earlier. 
um, wow, it's a whole generational shift. So we got to be dedicated to continuous learning or we're going to become obsolete very quickly. Exactly. That that focus of organizational learning and safety is really what helps us. So we need to make sure our team continues to learn and invest in themselves because our industry is changing so fast. We need to really understand and and how do we set the tone that you need to be continually learning. If you're not, you're going to become irrelevant, right? And 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 when we do that, we have to also focus on institutionalizing the improvement of daily work. So it's not just, hey, go go to work and, and turn the cog in the wheel. It's, is there a way you could use a lever that might make this go a little bit faster, a little bit easier for, for folks? And, and how do we do these things? You know, could we have some type of a Shark Tank award that says, whoever has a good new idea, we're going to give you a day off work for that. And now you got a lot of interested people to say, day off work sounds good. Let me come up with a good idea. And, and those sorts of little things of getting an organization stoked about how we can improve work to get better, really transform a culture to be something amazing. Yeah. And I think what we find is, is recognition are the loaves and fishes of a manager. That is to say, if you provide an ability to recognize people for excellence, reward them, share the credit for things. This is, they say credit is infinitely divisible. You can continue to hand it out. Now, obviously we don't want to diminish its importance by just kind of making it random. Okay, everybody gets a certificate of participation. We're all winners here. But rather for those who have really gone one step extra, who have put in some extra effort, demonstrated some dedication, not just in terms of their work ethic, but fixing things for others as well. We as leaders need to recognize those people and make sure that they are honored by their peers. So people say like, wow, that's pretty cool. I'd like to get one of those too, whether it's a command coin or whether it's a day off of work or, or something extra in your paycheck or, or even in the military, it would be a medal. And, uh, but the point was, is that people would look at that and they could say, wow, wow, this person's accomplished something. And in a way, we try to create a desire for others to want to create things as well. Yeah, I, I love that of, of taking local wins and making them to be global observations and, and perhaps global wins when others start to replicate it. And there's and, let me okay. a counterexample of that. So many years ago, uh, I had interviewed with a, uh, well, I guess it doesn't matter. It's been a long time, Texas Instruments, uh, because at the time I was leaving active duty from the Navy went into the reserves. And uh, so I was interviewing different companies. I remember going down there and I think, I don't recall exactly what they're doing, but they're building a missile seeker head for one of the military projects. It might've been A9, might've been something else. But in any case, I got to remember the time, this is 1984, 85, a long time ago, that one of the people was working on, he said, look, we built this computer system, which is interactive. It had a rudimentary speech system for its day. And as each manufacturing person would go to the next step, it would say, okay, attach the resistor in box seven to this fitting over here and use a reduced temperature th- um, uh, soldering iron or something like that. And so you could kind of query it. It says, you know, 400 degrees, no, 300, whatever it happened to be. And I'm thinking, wow, an interactive instructive system 
for manufacturing. So you realize this could revolutionize manufacturing in terms of changing the skill level required of people. And the guys who built it said, oh, no, no, we just, we just built this for our assembly line. And it was that total lack of vision. And again, not a criticism of the company or of the leadership at the time. And it's been so many years. That's why I don't mind mentioning a name. But it immediately caused me not to want to work there. Because although there was brilliant innovation, there was absolutely no incentive or desire to take these local discoveries and take them global. And I think if your culture encourages that, if somebody comes up with this brilliant innovation, they said, hey, boss, what do you think? This could, this could help out everybody else, not only the company, but it could maybe even become a whole new line of business. That's the culture that I think you want to look for. I, I think that's a great example. And, and, and I love how we should always look at the anti-patterns as well as the best practices. Both of those help us understand what, what we really want to drive at. Another one I, I keep thinking about is how do we inject resilience patterns into our daily work? And if you think about it this way, you know, nobody wants to have their system become compromised. Mm -hmm. And everybody wants their system to push out new features. So we might look for what are certain types of metrics that allow us to identify if a system is in a good desired state and how long does it take to release new code or new widgets for this project? And, and as we measure those sorts of deployment frequencies, we can start to see how we can incentivize and inject some of this resiliency. Yeah, because I think when we talk about resiliency, and again, I don't have Merriam-Webster's dictionary in front of me, but I think it's going to be um, you know, your ability to withstand your motivation in the face of adversity. That is to say, if you encounter obstacles and you keep on going, we saw talk about someone being resilient. And again, there may be a better dictionary definition for it, but that's off the top of my head. So if we want our teams to have a sense of resilience, one of the biggest dangers that I've found from a leadership perspective is people who've never encountered a problem. People who, for whatever reason, either through luck or outstanding skill or whatever, have really never had to deal with a major obstacle. And as a result, you don't know what they're going to do when they encounter failure. And it was Vince Lombardi who said, it's not whether you get knocked down, it's whether you get back up. Everybody's going to get knocked down at some point. And so what we want our teams is to be able to understand that failures may occur. You may not have encountered one. Okay, let's see what happens when it does happen. So we can rehearse that and we understand that it's okay not to sit in the corner with your head in your hands and go, oh, I just screwed everything up. I'm gone forever. I'm no longer perfect. But like, get back up and go fix it. So I think that culture part is going to be important for us as well. And, and I'm going to tell you one of the phrases I came up with that I think has been really helpful for me. It's heroes always appear when times are the hardest, right? You don't see heroes when the city is all, all perfect. That's not where Spider-Man and Batman and, and superheroes are. It's when things are the darkest and when you really need help. And, and I think that's where leaders really shine, right? Having that organization and transforming it into this place that is really something magical. So we had a good chance to, to overview 
the the three ways, the principles of flow, principles of feedback, and the principles of continuous learning. Once again, this comes from the book, The Phoenix Project by Gene Kim. So if you'd like to, to learn more and hear the whole narrative about this amazing company that goes through this, this journey, and, and also hear about one person as he has to live and learn through these processes, I, I can't recommend this book enough. It, it's super helpful. Well, that sounds like a great recommendation. I think a lot of people will benefit from it. So uh, hopefully this overview has encouraged folks to, if you've read the book or familiar with the materials, to go ahead and kind of refresh that. If you're not, uh, something you can get for yourself. I'll make it a present. Or if you have a uh, boss that you think could generate some uh, value, I'll make it a present for your boss because you never know. You may be able to have a uh, kind of a trickle-down effect, but make sure you read it yourself first. Awesome. Well, thank you for listening to this podcast. We love hearing your posts on LinkedIn and other locations and in hearing how we're helping you and your lives as listeners. And if you have other feedback, please please send us a link on our, our website, CISOTradeCraft.com or on, on LinkedIn. G. Mark and I are both there. So thank you again for your time. Please subscribe and share the episode with your friends. And we look forward to providing you more CISO Tradecraft. Take care, everyone.